Welcome to The Hormone Suite, where we talk about all things hormonal and how our hormones can positively or negatively govern our lives. We examine the intersection between our external and internal environments and empower you to become hormonally literate. This podcast was created to demystify and destigmatize hormones so that you can become part of a new generation of people who are the masters of their own health. I'm Talia Minot. And I'm Gemma Martin. And we're very excited for you to join us on this journey. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Hormone Suite podcast. Today, you've got Gemma Martin and... Talia Minot. Hi, guys. I feel like it's been a while since we've both chatted to you. So nice to be back here and talking all all things hormonal. Today, we're going to be talking about fertility, infertility, and subfertility. First of all, before we get stuck into it, let's talk about our hormonal hails and fails, because I feel like these are pretty funny and they make everyone realize that they're not alone in their ups and downs of their hormonal cycle. Do you want to go first this morning, Talia? Yeah, absolutely. Love to share this. So my hormonal hail is that... As many of you know, I was diagnosed with PCOS a long time ago and I had really long cycles and coming back into my cycle after my second birth, so I've had it back for about almost a year, it was still a little bit on the longer side, but the last few cycles I've had have been 28 days, which has been really epic because I don't know if I've ever experienced 28 day cycles in my hormonal life. <laughs> yeah. And just to note, you know, 26 to 34 days or 26 to 32 days is probably a healthy cycle. So you don't have to be hitting that 28 day cycle, but it was just really nice because I've always experienced the longer And my hormonal fail, I just think I've been really struggling in that luteal phase. So just super snappy, super noticing all the things that irritate me. And yeah, I probably need to up my magnesium, I think. (laughs) Yeah, I can definitely relate to that one. I had a shocker last month. Mm, tell us oh it was bad so I suppose there's a few things going on for me personally just more more solo parenting I was drinking coffee like an idiot like just you know I'm quite caffeine sensitive solo parenting (laughs) no but it's like the exact thing I shouldn't be doing is drinking coffee because it makes me really sped up and snappy and I'm already a bit like that in my luteal phase and I'd run out a bunch of my magnesium and some of my other herbs and I just sort of thought I think I thought oh no I'm good I'm I don't need this but I feel like perhaps with me, I I think I've just come to the realization that perhaps it's not even PMS. It's actually a bit of PMDD because I go mental, like pretty bad. So that was rough. And, you know, if you're a parent and you're being angry and shouty with your kids, the guilt feelings then last for another week or so after that. You don't just get your period and go, oh, everything's great. I was just feeling so horrible about it. So... I suppose that leads me to my hormonal hail, which is that I just reached out for some extra help and I contacted my network of practitioners and got some extra support in terms of nutrients and herbs. And I'm just like reached out to our Instagram followers for some help with some caffeine detox stuff so that I can just remind myself that this is really real for me. And probably if I didn't have kids, it wouldn't be quite so obvious, but it's really obvious when you don't get that space to sort of like regulate on your own or exercise as much as you would normally, or even just that to walk around your house in silence. <laughs> totally. Oh 
my gosh, solo parenting. I can't imagine. Like I've done it a few times when Scott's just gone away for work and it's huge because mm. those moments of meltdown where you can often, you know, pass them off to someone else, you don't have that. So yeah, you're doing amazing. Thanks, thanks for sharing because I think, you know, as practitioners, we're not perfect too and there's stuff going on in our lives and yes, we know how to reach out and to support ourselves, but I think it's really important for people to be aware that practitioners have stuff going on as well of course and that's sort of funnily enough how we often end up in this field you know it's the same thing like you had hormonal issues Mm. with your cycle I had fertility issues falling pregnant my cycle's always been on the shorter side I think I've probably always had pretty bad PMS and or PMDD and if you don't know what that is it's premenstrual dysphoric disorder where your whole sort of world just flips on its head in the second half of your cycle when you're due to bleed and that I, I definitely feel that I'm like oh I've ovulated everything's about to change <laughs> and it, it can be really difficult so you're not alone if you're out there with hormonal stuff and and we have it too we're not we're definitely not in hormonal perfection but always uh, striving towards it and I guess on that note too you know reach out if it is something that you struggle with because I think some women are led to believe that that's just a normal part of having your cycle and it's not. There's things that we can do to help balance that out. So yeah, so let's get on to the topic today because I really love this topic and we have a lot of clients that come to us in, I guess their preconception, but also if they're struggling a little bit with fertility. So we're going to chat today about subfertility, which I love that term and that's something that Gemma bought to me when we started this business together. And I was like, I love that. Instead of, you know, using this term infertility, I really love the term subfertility because often, you know, when women or partners go to the doctors, they're often given diagnosis of unexplained infertility. And often, not always, of course, but often there is actually an explanation as to what's going on. And Over the years, Gemma and I have had many clients that have come to us and, you know, we've worked with them, we've tweaked some things and they've fallen pregnant. And it's such an amazing feeling for obviously them and us. And yeah, I think if you've gone to someone and you've been given the term unexplained fertility, but there hasn't been any deeper work and looking into like the root cause of what possibly is going on. This is a podcast to just say to you right now, go and find a practitioner and have a look into potentially what might be going on because there's an absolute host of things that could be occurring. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes it's only unexplained because we haven't looked, Mm. you know, like the research is out there showing, you know, the different things that will impact egg health and sperm health. And it's only a matter, it's kind of almost like when they're talking about IBS, it's like irritable bowel syndrome. And it's like, oh, we don't know why. It's just, you know, idiopathic. It's like, it's not idiopathic. Something is irritating the bowel. It's either food or it's a a microbiome or a stress issue. And once we get to the bottom of that, pretty sure that this person is going to have good bowel movements and it seems like the same thing to me with fertility it's like a lot of the time you're told to go off and just try for 12 months and if you know 12 months is a long time to be trying a long time and not falling pregnant and especially there's a lot of stress that comes with that every month you're waiting to see oh is there a blue line two blue lines oh no here's my period now I feel stressed about that before they'll even investigate. And then at that point, you're sort of like often just sent off for semen analysis and and then straight to the IVF clinic. And there's not a whole lot in between 
trying to fall pregnant and then going into IVF or ICSI, depending on, you know, what your fertility status is. And I think that's where we come in. You know, that's where we have amazing tools and really, really the biggest tool I think is inquiry. Yeah. Asking a lot of questions, figuring out, okay, what's going on with this person's cycle? What's going on with the semen analysis and getting to the bottom of what could be impeding this couple from having a healthy pregnancy. And I don't think it always happens in the clinic. Like I've definitely worked with couples who are really difficult, stubborn, you know, stubborn cases of, inf- of subfertility where they have ended up going down the IVF pathway. And, you know, we can support you through that as well. But for many couples who are sort of just throwing their hands up in the air going, what's going on? We do some work together and then they fall pregnant and how how much do you know you're doing your job right when you get a baby at the end of it? It's really exciting for obviously for them the most, but also for us too. So there's lots of things out there. And I suppose, I don't know, I suppose I'm curious to know where you start, Talia. Like when you when you have a couple coming in to see you and you're like, what's your first things that you're asking them about with their fertility journey? So before we go into that, I just want to add to what you just said and just say, you know, if if you do come as a couple to see, you know, someone like ourselves or, or your preferred practitioner and you do end up doing all the work, trying to find out what's going on, tweaking some things, and then you do go down the IVF channel, it's not a waste of time to be mm. working with alternative practitioners prior to that because what we're doing is trying to get you into the best possible health that you can be. So then you're going to go into that IVF journey in the best possible health that you can possibly be. So it's going to actually support that journey as well. But yeah, it's going to be really what we're looking at doing is improving sperm egg health, egg health and host health, like whoever's going to be housing that baby. And regardless of whether you do that naturally or through IVF, you still want the best quality sperm. Mm. You still want the best quality eggs because obviously that's going to improve your IVF journey, but also you're passing on that DNA to your next generation. And the more work that you do prior to going down that pathway, the better the DNA is going to be. And we don't want to be passing on crappy DNA because then our kids are going to have compounded issues on top of what we've got in terms of fertility. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also I was saying this to uh, one of our clients the other day, I think that when you have your children, I mean, obviously for the woman, you want to be feeling the best possible health that you can be for your pregnancy and then your postpartum. But even for the guy, I would want to be in the best possible health that I could be for my children so that I'm feeling vibrant and active and alive, you know, on top of all the DNA and sperm and egg health. But anyway, obviously we're both very passionate about this. (laughs) So I guess what I do when couples come to see us initially I think I really take it back to basics. And the first thing that I, you know how much I love charting the cycle, Mm. something that I just love doing. So I get all of um, our fertility, subfertility clients to learn how to chart their cycle. And the reason I love it so much, I think sometimes, you know, probably a small amount of couples, but you know, this sometimes is occurring. They're simply just timing sex wrong. And what I love about charting the cycle is that you can pinpoint exactly when you ovulate, when you've ovulated, how long your luteal phase is. So that phase between ovulation and your bleed, because it's really important that that's at least nine to 10 days to support a fertilized egg. And we can see what's going on in terms of your basal body temperature, which can tell us a lot about hormonal health and thyroid health. So For me, that's like the one key thing that I do first. But 
for the woman, I think it's just really important to actually just pinpoint exactly when you're ovulating. And for some women that can shift slightly month to month. Usually it's around the same time, but it can shift slightly. So yeah, that's my first point of call. And you? I start everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I think that probably says more about my, my state of my mind than anything. I suppose I, having been through my own long fertility journey, where I had um, multiple issues going on that were dealt with sequentially. So one after the other, you know, had this blocked tube issues, had to wait to get a surgery for that. Then I had that removed and then I was having miscarriages still. And then it looked like there was some semen issues, you know, and each of these things happened one by one. So that's part of the reason. I th- and I think that couldn't have been avoided. That's just the nature of my, my journey. But one of the things that I like to do with my clients is to start everywhere and just look, I look at, um, you know, the length, length of the menstrual cycle, the, the symptoms of the menstrual cycle, how heavy is the bleed? Is there lots of inflammation going on for that woman? Is she ovulating too late in her cycle? Because if the egg comes out too late, then it's going to be degraded and it's not going to support a healthy pregnancy. Is the, is the progesterone high enough to support the endometrium so that, that it's actually strong and fluffy enough to have an embryo land in there and support that embryo? Is there stress issues? I think mm. so many of our patients are just totally in their head. And for especially for women, it's such a time that you need to be really deep into your body. And that's like telling your body this is totally safe to have a, you know, to support a pregnancy. Hormones are going to be, you know, far more better if, if you're feeling more safe and, you know, regulated in your body, I suppose, a little bit more yin. Um, whereas I think for a lot of our female clients, they're really in their head. They're quite anxious. They're more yang sort of behavior. They're doing more of those masculine sort of like heady things. And even fitness wise, they can be doing that. So slowing down, I think is a really big thing. I like to see if the tubes are open. So fallopian tubes are open. If they've been trying for a while and nothing's been happening, I'm, I'm thinking about that. They can become blocked just up with like mucus and gunk. Or if there's been STDs in the past, they can become scarred and then sort of stuck together. And that means that the sperm can't travel all the way up there to get the egg and the egg also can't travel down the fallopian tube to meet the sperm big on sperm (laughs) you are a sperm expert we'll get into that but i just want to before we get into that because i know you know obviously we do saliva hormone testing and we do many many different testing modules but i know you love your labs and you love looking at nutrients and stuff and is that something you're also always going into yeah yeah so always i'm looking at baseline hormones post ovulatory hormones then looking at nutrients i see so many people who are depleted in their basic nutrients that are necessary for supporting good egg quality I'm always going to start supporting with nutrients as well. Like things like making sure people are getting adequate omegas and iron, zinc, B12, folate, all of those things that are important for DNA replication. You know, it's like the DNA can't do, it can't replicate, which is the biggest thing that it's going to be doing in early embryogenesis if there's not the right nutrients there in order for that to happen. So I test for those definitely. I'm looking at methylation issues if that's um, sort of come up as, as part of the case history. Yeah. Yeah, cool. All right, let's get into sperm because Gemma is like a sperm expert. So let's chat about sperm. And I guess I want to start this with just, I think there's been a really huge emphasis on sperm lately because 
all these studies are coming out in the last couple of years, which are showing like how much sperm is declining and it's pretty drastic. And there's a lot to question about the way that we now live in the modern world and the certain things that we're exposed to in terms of like plastics and herbicides and pesticides and chemicals and all these things. So yeah, let's chat about sperm. What's your first thing you do with sperm? (laughs) (laughs) In the labs. Well, I'm always looking at the whole semen analysis. So I like ideally for my clients to get a a proper andrology lab semen analysis, but if they don't, then just one from their GP is perfectly fine too. Um, So I'm looking at the count. I'm looking at morphology. So that's the shape. Motility has how well they move. Progressive motility is how well they move forward because obviously they have to have a forward progression in order to get um, through that genitourinary tract and up into the fallopian tubes. And then sometimes I'll look deeper if I think that there's more of an issue there. I'm looking at the, the male history as well, like where they've grown up, what they've been exposed to in their early life, because there's a bit of evidence now emerging that when humans, and males and females, are exposed to certain chemicals and pharmaceuticals even in their early life, like let's say the first sort of three to five years, that can cause epigenetic changes or genetic changes that will persist right into adulthood. So things like where you grew up, what you're doing for work, what's your chemical exposure like, Diet, obviously, is a huge one. And then lifestyle stuff as well. Like, are you doing exercise? That means that your scrotal temperature is going to be elevated. The reason that the testicles hang outside the body is because spermatogenesis needs to occur at about a degree cooler than core body temperature. And I mean, why did the why why did evolution do that? Hard to say. But anyway, that's the way it is. <laughs> I always think with that, you know, so many guys, particularly tradies, and I know my partner was like this, have the phones in the pockets mm. right next to the balls. And obviously that's going to heat it up. Or, you know, they get home, get the laptop to watch something and they, they sit that on the lap. Yeah. So I actually went to the Apple iPhone for my, or is it called an Apple iPhone? No, the Apple watch. Oh, the watch. For my partner, because I was like, I just don't want you having your phone in your pocket. I want your phone away from there. That's a really good idea, actually, because it's a hard one for tradies who need to be Mm. taking calls and, you know, they need to have their phones on them all the time. I recommend sometimes the calf pocket in like a pair of cargos, but the the Apple Watch is a good one, too. Yeah, we used to have a ball pillow. (laughs) Ball pillow? Tell us more. (laughs) Probably wasn't adequate, but it was like, you know, because we didn't have a TV and would watch shows in bed together and I'd always be like get that laptop off your, off your lap so we, <laughs> we had like a pillow stack that would oh, at least put a bit of space oh. between the heat of the laptop but also the EMFs of the laptop and the phone yes. too so there's research around that that shows that it degrades sperms yeah mm. absolutely so on that note you know we do have we don't have reception where we live so we have wi-fi but we try and keep it off as much as possible and particularly when we're sleeping at night because this is the time of rest rejuvenation and so yeah if you guys have wi-fi around please turn it off at night you don't need it at night time you're sleeping yeah definitely and i think just being mindful of where your phone is in general like you don't need to keep it on your body all of the time and you know when i see women putting it in their bras it Mm. just makes me I freak out, but, um, that's not going to affect your sperm health. (laughs) (laughs) So on the other side of that, you know, on the heating side, so cooling the balls, Mm. because there's actually some really cool things now that, you know, obviously you can do an ice pack, but that you can actually get jocks, can't Mm. you? Yeah. 
So you can get ice undies. So yeah, decreasing testicular temperature has been proven to improve sperm, all of the sperm parameters. So for some guys, depending on, you know, we'll go through all of their diet, make sure they're doing all the diet and lifestyle stuff to support healthy spermatogenesis. And then sometimes if there's a bit of an issue with count, you know, that could be passed down from your parents as well. Like where I feel like we, our generation is definitely less robust than our parents' generation. There was, it didn't seem to be any fertility issues in, mm. in their generation, whereas we've definitely had more, but yeah, then ice using the ice undies is really good. You can use ice baths sitting for a long period of time. Just sitting it is going to increase scrotal temperature. There's research around watching TV because you're just sitting there increases scrotal temperature it's going to have an effect negative effect on sperm so people like truck drivers i've had some patients yes. who are truck drivers I always think of truck drivers yeah or bus this. drivers and they would used to just they used to make their own ice packs like with um like cold peas what do you got not mushy peas <laughs> <laughs> might have been mushy by the end <laughs> <laughs> just put that on your meat pie at the next stop Sorry, frozen peas. Yeah. <laughs> and they sort of would make their own ice pack to put around their junk, for lack of a better term, when they were doing a long drive, just so to decrease that elevation in scrotal temperature. So that's a big one. And then paying attention to activities that might also just keep your testicles closer to your body, like things like bike riding is something that we'd sort of say, oh, maybe just wait until after your partner's pregnant to do that or um, motorbike riding, anything where there's, you know, horse riding obviously is going to cause a, a mechanical damage there too. So those activities I recommend to avoid. And some of the other ones are things like golf, mm. not because of the heat, but because of the pesticides and stuff that all of the chemicals that they spray on the golf course is like really toxic. And I know that golf heads just hate that. I mean, anyone who's got an obsession with any sort of sport or activity it's really hard saying can you just give that a break for a while but it it is really necessary sometimes just to reduce that toxic load on the body that is going to be impacting the sperm health and on that note you know if you are clients of ours alongside with that we'd obviously get you to do some gentle detoxing if you have been exposed to those type of chemicals but it is really important in this time Uh, not to be focusing too much on detoxing. Like obviously there's an element of it, but we obviously need to build the bodies to be able to have really great sperm and egg health. I think we differ a bit on that. I'm all about it. I'm all about the pre prenatal detox. I think I think that's the time to do it. I mean, I love a prenatal detox, but also a rebuild. Yeah, and I think it just depends on where someone's coming from from in terms of their nutrition. Like if they're if not having enough nutrients is the big thing, or if having excess. Mm toxicity is the big thing and and, you know often those overlap sometimes there's there's both or often there's both but we're definitely looking at those things but I think if there's toxicity exposure like heavy metals like a lot of men work in the mining industry or as like mechanics or welders you know there's lots of these things where you're exposed to a lot of toxic metals and if they're in your body and they're impacting sperm health we've got to get them out yeah so we you know we do look at that as part of the preconception process or the fertility process for our our clients with subfertility yeah totally and i think just toxins in general for both the male and female you know the the research around plastics and pcbs and bpa and pfas is just astronomical it's huge and it's probably the biggest difference that's between our generation and let's say our parents is the you know the ubiquity of plastics they're just they weren't we used to get our milk in glass milk bottles yeah but i think even 
in terms of that, even just the chemicals that are being used and how the life of some of those chemicals, I remember this, and I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before, because I just um, was astounded when I heard this, but it was this study done by this woman, Sarah, I can't remember her last name. She's Australian, but she went to the US to do it. And she did a study on placental umbilical cords and placentas. And found on average, I think it was 240, don't completely quote me, but it was definitely over 200 chemicals. But some of the chemicals she was finding had been banned like six years ago. Mm. So if we think about that, you know, in our soils, the chemicals that have been banned but are still probably prevalent. So the accumulation of that also. Mm. Yeah. And some of that we just don't have control over, you know. A lot of that's in our atmosphere. It's in our soils. It's in our drinking water. Even if you filter things, like it's not, we're not going to get to perfection when it comes to our physical health these days because we don't live in... Well, the world that we live in has just is just laden with chemicals. But I think we just, at this point in time, we do what we can. We yeah. focus on modifying what we can modify, controlling what we can control. And that means eating like a clean diet. If you're not going to be organic, choosing at least your clean 15 veggies and avoiding your dirty, dirty dozen. dozen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, brain. <laughs> and, you know, looking at your home life, looking at the whatever you're using for cleaning products and your per- probably your personal care is the biggest one. I think a lot of women in particular are using, what do you say? They put on like a hundred chemicals, 150 chemicals just in, in terms of like personal care products. Which yeah. Is nuts. It's nuts. And then you've got your acrylic nails and your tans and you know, all of the things that everyone's sort of doing to keep up with the next hottest thing in fashion. Being like Gemma and I, low maintenance. <laughs> But honestly, I feel like you feel so much better for it because I used to be that woman. I had the nails, I had the hair bleached and all the things and used to spray tan myself once a week. To think of that is like horrid, that spray that I was just breathing in. But it totally messed with all my hormones Mm. and now I feel so much better being so much more low maintenance. Oh, and you can spend all your money on awesome food and supplements to help your fertility as well. And also, you know, postnatally, you've got to be pretty low maintenance because it's all about the baby. So it's probably (laughs) a good time. And you don't want to be introducing those chemicals to the baby as well. You know, obviously, like if you're getting shellac nails, that does leach into your body. Your nails are not like a bone or even if they were a bone, bones absorb things. Your nails absorb chemicals. Your skin is a hugely absorbent organ. That is all going into your body. And when you are pregnant and when you are breastfeeding, every single chemical ends up in that baby. Breastfeeding and and, and having having a baby is, is uh, a huge detox for your body because you get rid of all, you dump all your chemicals into them. Totally. So back to the plastics just briefly. I think, you know, some things you can do try and not buy everything in plastic like come on and I also think we need to shift this why are we going to supermarkets and buying vegetables that are wrapped like single vegetable a piece like a cucumber wrapped in plastic let's try and avoid that because that plastic is going to leach into your cucumber and then you are going to eat that so try and buy things that aren't in plastic so in terms of I guess your grains and your nuts and your seeds and everything, try and find a bulk shop and you can take your jars with you and fill up your jars. Yes, it might take a little bit for you to switch into that and to get organized, but 
it's going to be better for you, right? And I guess one of the things I still see so much and it just really surprises me is when people are drinking out of plastic bottles. I just can't. Yeah. I just cannot. I know it's like I do other things that are not great for my health, but I just cannot do the plastic water bottle thing. Like we were getting some food the other day and my daughter was like, mom, I'm thirsty. Can I get a water bottle? And I was just like, no, absolutely not. This is not happening. We're going to going home to drink some filtered water. I will not buy that plastic water bottle. And also as a, as a bit of a protest against the single use plastic industry, because that's just absolutely feral. But yeah, plastic water bottles is definitely a thing. I see, whenever I see like a fitness instructor or someone on YouTube and they like go and grab their plastic water bottle, I'm like, no. <laughs> well, I mean, I shout out to the Pilates class I used to go to. I mean, it's what I always look at and I would look around the room and most of the people there, and I'm not even kidding, most of them had plastic water bottles. And I'm like, wow, you guys are really caring about your fitness, but maybe you just don't know, mm. right? What's going on? So I love glass. Obviously it does smash. So stainless steel um, mm. is also great. Whatever you can get, just not plastic. Stainless steel is pretty, pretty sturdy and pretty yeah. cheap and easy to get. And I think then just avoiding like your other big plastic sources, like things like tinned food is huge. I try and avoid tinned food at all costs. I'm not, per- I'm not perfect. I can tell you that, but there's lots of things that you don't need to get in tins and you can choose passata in a glass jar or you can soak your own chickpeas and lentils. If they're things that you use in cans and just try and move away from that whole tinned food industry. Cause that's a big source, like anything where there's moisture coming into contact with that plastic and then you think about how long that might have been in contact if it's a a tinned food that might be years that it's just sitting there absorbing those plastics from the lining of the of the can and that's that's a lot so on that note if you heat your things in a microwave one i'd love you to stop but two please don't do it in plastic because this is something that Mm. you know we see a lot as well is reheating and heating things in plastic in a microwave or if you've made a meal and you're having leftovers which we often do don't put your hot leftovers into plastic i mean ideally buy glass buy a heap of glass pyrex and then you can use them in the oven as well but if you are going to use plastic please wait until it's cooled and don't put that heated dish into your plastic container yeah, plastics are a big one for us, obviously, but they, they, they are everywhere, you know, and I think just trying to avoid eating them is a really yeah. good thing. Like get rid of your glad wrap. You don't need glad wrap. You can cover your food with beeswax or those little silicon lid top things that, that you can get around now. We just don't need to have those. And they're usually a super convenience thing, but there's so many other options now. There's so many people doing ingenious sidesteps to using those single use plastics that shed off into your food and end up in your body and then ultimately in your baby. There you totally. go. <laughs> <laughs> and so- what else? I mean, I suppose, yeah, there's other things that I always look at for couples as well with fertility issues that it's not just her or him, assuming that where, yeah, I'm just using those gender pronouns for this particular podcast. But, you know, things where sometimes there's a bit of a genetic mismatch between the couple and sometimes the female or the person who's housing that potential baby can have immune issues that doesn't allow the introduction of that new DNA into her body. So I think, you know, I might have had some of that going on in my first pregnancy where I had to take some extra support to stop my body from rejecting the embryo because that was going on. So some of those things can be looked into. They're a little bit more sort of funky and nuanced, I suppose, than what you get in just a standard 
fertility appointment, but it's definitely worth looking outside the box sometimes and saying, why is this not happening for these guys? Because throughout history, all we've been doing is trying not to get pregnant. It's only now that everyone is struggling to get pregnant and we've got to think about that, what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Any parting words? I just think to have faith that until we have looked, until you have looked deep into your health and you've, you know, you've had a look at gut health, you've had a look at your stress levels, we've worked on balancing the uh, the menstrual cycle, improve nutrition for sperm health, you know, look at stress levels for guys as well, because that's a huge thing too. Until we've looked into all of these things, don't accept it. Mm. You don't need to accept that you're infertile. Just to share a little bit more about my journey, like I remember getting a semen analysis back from my kid's dad and it came through my fertility clinic and it just said, we're recommending you for ICSI because you, you know, you don't qualify for natural fertility or for IVF. And I was like, well, I'm pregnant. Like I know that (laughs) I'm sorry, I do qualify. And I think if I didn't have the knowledge that I had, I'd probably, that would have been devastating. And I probably would have gone downhill a little bit in my emotional world, but I knew that it was going to happen. I knew there was an answer. And and I also think that if we can avoid going down the IVF and ICSI pathway as much as possible, and ICSI, just in case people don't know what that term means, it's where they inject the sperm into the egg. So the sperm doesn't even have to sort of do its traveling process in order to get there and bust through that egg's um, outer membrane. And that happens a lot when there's bad sperm issues or significant sperm issues, I should say. And what happens then is that we're passing on again, dodgy sperm, dodgy DNA into the next generation. So, of course, it's going to happen sometimes. And, of course, if if you've done all of the things and there's still no baby happening, do whatever you need to do to get that baby. I'm not, not trying to shame anyone out of doing IVF or ICSI if that's what their bodies eventually need. But let's cover off all the bases before that because if you can get a natural conception, the sperm that you're passing on, the DNA that you're passing on is going to be so much more robust than if you go through IVF where there's less sort of like natural selection of that sperm. They don't have to travel all the way through the reproductive tract. They don't have to wait there and wait for the egg to come out. It's not necessarily going to be the most robust sperm or ICSI where a lab tech decides for you and they cannot tell what who you know the most robust sperm is going to be. So if you can do it naturally or as natural as possible – do that do it that way there's less complications there's less risk of preterm birth and early miscarriage and a lot of uh, perinatal complications as well yeah absolutely and i think just to close on that you know as as i said at the start there's often a root cause and that's what we're here for that's what we're trained in finding for you and you know i think at the end of it you're going to feel better in yourself and I think that's also a huge part of what we do and what we support and it's empowering yeah totally so empowering rather than handing over your health to you know someone in a white coat and saying oh we can't do it can you do it for us like again obviously sometimes that needs to happen but if you can if you can pull on pull up your bootstraps and do some of that hard work you're gonna feel so good about yourself like it is really empowering so 
get it done. Do it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Until next time, have a beautiful day. Bye. Bye. Okay, sexy hormoners. That's it for us this week. Please don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. And if you need more help with your hormones, we're always here for you at The Hormone Suite Clinic. You can find us at thehormonesuite.com or on Insta at The Hormone Suite. Bye. Bye.